Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good to hear from you. My name is Jonah. I serve as the missions pastor here at Vista. We have our old team. Thanks for joining us in worship this morning as we continue the series that we have called Grateful. Um, before we get into that, though, I wanted to say that, as many of us know, this has been a challenging and difficult season. Um, and for many professions, it's been very difficult. But to be a pastor in this year has been really hard. But our two lead pastors got to take a break this week, much needed time with their families. So I came this, this morning to preach. Um, and so if you would, just this week as you're thinking about it, just pray for our pastors. Pray for Austin and Dave as they've led our church through a very difficult and challenging season. Send them a note. Give them an air high five um, because they deserve it. They've done an awesome job in this year. So we're thankful for them. But we've, we've been working our way through the series we've called Grateful, in which we've been talking about that the mark of the people of God is that we are a thankful and grateful people, that we're filled with gratitude. And throughout the series, Dave has stressed over and over again that Thanksgiving is typically the holiday that kind of gets the shaft, um, and it gets overlooked by the Super Bowl of holidays, which is Christmas. Um, and, but now that Thanksgiving has had its moment, we're going to still talk about gratitude. But Thanksgiving has had its moment, so if it's okay... I'd like to share a Christmas memory, if that's all right. Well, nobody objected, so I think we'll do it. When I was about 10 years old, um, I became fixated on the idea of getting the classic Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas. Just like out of the Christmas Story movie, I had to have the Red Ryder BB gun. I told my parents for months and months and months, this is what I want for Christmas. I need the Red, Red Ryder BB gun. I have to have it. Please get me the Red Ryder BB gun. And they said, well, we'll see, you know. And, and I, I cut out the ad, and I put it up on the fridge, and I said, that's the one? That's the Red Ryder BB gun. Can I please get it for Christmas? And they said, we'll see. We'll see what happens. And then Christmas finally comes weeks and weeks and weeks later, and it's Christmas morning, and I run down the stairs in my Christmas jammies, and I look under the, the tree, and I don't see any gifts that look anything like a Red Ryder BB gun in their size and shape. And I start to get a little sad. And then we start to open Christmas presents, and again, opening, and no Red Ryder BB gun. We get to the very end, no Red Ryder BB gun. And I'm a little sad. My, my cheer and happiness had turned to, to doom and gloom. But at that moment, my dad says, Jonah, go look behind the couch. I think there's something, I think there's one more gift right behind the couch. And I said, huh? So I go, and I look behind the couch, and I pull out, and of course, what is it? The classic Red Ryder BB gun. And I am so happy. I cry tears of happiness. I run outside and instantly start shooting everything inside, the neighbor's cat, the mailbox, anything I could lay my eyes on, I'm putting BBs into. I was so happy. So happy, filled with happiness. Now, the same year, the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia, came out. Shortly after Christmas, my family went to see this movie. And if you've seen the movie, you know that in this movie, they don't use BB guns to fight evil. They do not. They use swords and bows and arrows to fight evil to keep the world and make it a safe place. So I said, I have to get a bow and arrow. I have to have a bow and arrow. That's what will make me happy if I get a bow and arrow. And I became fixated on the idea of getting a bow and arrow, and I found one in a magazine, and I cut out the ad, and I put it up on the fridge so my parents knew the bow and arrow to get me that was coming for my birthday, which was still about nine months away. Um, you know, and, and my happiness that I had had in my Red Ryder BB gun was pretty short-lived because I was expecting the happiness that the bow and arrow would bring to me. I was looking forward to it, and my contentment was short-lived. I was not content. The lack of contentment won the day again. And while it's funny to think about, maybe, maybe you were a more grateful child than I was, um, or maybe you have similar memories of the same kind of um, toys and things like that only lasting a short amount and making us happy for just a little bit. 
The truth is that this lack of contentment, I think, has followed most of us into adulthood. A lack of contentment has followed us now into adulthood. It starts out small when we're kids with toys and things like that. But then we become grown-ups. And the things we start to think will make us happy are, if I just had a bigger house, I'd be happy. If I just had a nicer car, I'd, I'd be happy. If my kids would just behave a little better, I'd be happy. If I could take vacations like that family takes vacations, I'd be happy. And we start to think of all of these things that we can acquire that will make us happy, that will bring us happiness. And soon enough, happiness becomes a primary driving force behind the way that we live our entire lives. Our lives are centered on this idea of happiness. But we can't be entirely to blame for this, not just ourselves. The truth is that after World War II, the Western society, the market shifted from an agricultural production market to a goods-based market. The idea was, and, and the, the motto of this new market became, convince the customer that they need this product in order to be happy. That's how the market shifted. Any a market historian would be able to tell you that. One of my favorite authors, his name is Andrew Root, he addresses this phenomenon in one of his books, and he says this, it'll be on the screen, he says, by the late 1960s, advertisements told us that the products we buy are directly related to living a good life. Therefore, it only makes sense that if we discern products through happiness, then we should in turn use happiness to discern every part of our lives, including non-consumer spheres, like our marriages, vocations, and spiritual involvements. And so as a transition of the market creates a transition of culture, creates a transition of our worldview, it's no surprise that happiness has become the central and primary driving force behind our collective lives. We want to be happy. And parents want their kids to be happy. And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with happiness. It's good to want to be happy. But when happiness becomes a problem is the fact that it's become the highest aim and goal of our society. We've made happiness the central part of our lives. Happiness has become the center focus of our lives, and we're convinced that we ought to be happy all the time. Our world, believe it or not, revolves around the buying and the consumption of happiness. Happiness that's sold in the homes we live in, the cars we drive, the food we eat, the products we use, the activities our kids are involved in, the vacations we take. Happiness is bought and sold, bought and sold, bought and sold. And so essentially any choice we have the ability to make for ourselves is steeped in happiness. We make the choices we do in order to be happy, and we make the choices that we think one day will help our kids be happy. But happiness has a tragic flaw. The way we've made happiness out to be, happiness has a tragic flaw, and that is that happiness is incredibly incredibly fragile. We've, we've seen this year for many people. Happiness can leave us in an instant. We can lose the job, and shortly the house, and the boat, and the investments, and the kids' activities go, and all these things that we base our happiness on can disappear overnight, almost instantly. The things we chase after, we can lose so easily, and our happiness, the center of our lives, is based on these things that we think we can gain and achieve and earn, and that is what makes us happy. But those things are incredibly fragile, and making happiness the center of our lives is like building a bridge over a stream out of Twix. Because happiness is not intended to bear the weight that we put on it. We put weight 
and pressure on this idea of happiness, but happiness is not intended to be the center of our lives. Happiness can't hold it. Happiness can't hold the weight that we put on it. And so happiness, when we make happiness our highest aim, we often realize that it tends to splinter and eventually crack underneath us. And then when the pursuit of happiness is, is our highest aim, we'll never, ever actually find it. When we make happiness our highest aim in pursuit and we chase after it, we realize we're never going to find it. And we put all of our efforts towards, toward chasing happiness, we end up feeling empty. And one day the floor drops out beneath, beneath us when we've been chasing happiness that many of us have seen this year. And so we, as a people who are striving to follow the way of Jesus, but we're living in the center of a world that's made its entire attention on happiness, what does it look like for us to be faithful? And what does it look like for us to pursue contentment in a world that's so focused on happiness? Well, I think Paul's letter to the Philippians can help us out a little bit with that. Um, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Philippi, has a lot to say about, about humility and thankfulness and contentment. And toward the end of his letter, he's going to reveal what he calls his big secret. And so if you would turn with me, if you have your Bible, it would be on the screen. Philippians chapter 4, we'll start in verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul is writing here toward the end of his letter to the, to the Philippians. And he says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you, the Philippians, have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. So Paul is writing this letter to his, truly his friends in the church at Philippi. Scholars believe that Paul had a certain affinity and love for the church at Philippi that he seemed to not have toward the other churches that he began, because he spent so much time with the Philippian Christians. And throughout his journey, the church at Philippi had funded Paul several times before. So Paul says, you've, you've been generous before, and you've had concern for me before, but now your concern is raised again. And that is because Paul is in prison, either in Ephesus or in Rome. And in the ancient world, when someone is in prison, they were dependent upon those on the outside to support them, to even be able to survive. And so to get food or clothing or things like that, Paul was dependent on his friends outside of the walls of the prison to send those things in so that he could survive. And so he's saying, I am thankful that your concern is revived for me and you have an opportunity to act now. He's thankful for the Philippian Christians that they're sending their support while he's in prison for sharing the gospel. Now in verse 11, Paul kind of transitions. He says, not that I speak from need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. And so we have to remember who's writing here. This is Paul, who his name previously in Scripture is referred to as Saul, as well as Paul. And Paul is living his good life. He's doing everything he needs to do to be happy and successful within his class, religious class of the day. He's doing everything he needs to be happy and climb the ladder. And then he has this experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life is changed forever. And then Paul finds himself traveling the known world, sharing the gospel, and it results in him being shipwrecked, beaten, kicked out of city after city, kicked out of synagogue after synagogue, and now he finds himself in prison, a disgusting and vile ancient world prison. And this guy, Paul, is saying, now, now I'm not speaking out of need. I'm not speaking out of need. I am content. And if you're like me, you read about Paul, and you're like, man, if anybody has some need, Paul, you, you got some need, man. Like, you have some need. But Paul is saying, no, I've learned to be content. Because he's not chasing after happiness as his ultimate good, and he's letting his friends 
at the church at Philippi in on his secret as to why. And here he's about to reveal his secret. Verse 12, he says, I know how to get along with little. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So Paul knows what it's like to be full and hungry. He knows what it's like to have everything he needs and have nothing. And this is a secret he's been learning, and it's become the guiding point of his whole life, both in and out of prison, both when he's been accepted and ran out of cities and synagogues, when Paul is literally lifting his face out of the mud, picking himself up off the ground, dusting himself off and saying, Holy Spirit, where should I go next to share the gospel? This is, this is his secret. This is how he does it. This is how he seeks to not chase after happiness, but contentment. Verse 13, he says, and you've probably heard this. You might have it tattooed on your body or on a shirt or, or on a bracelet. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the, the true Greek text here says something more like, I have strength in the one strengthening me. And so the secret to contentment, the secret to true life for Paul is not the endless chasing and pursuit of happiness because Paul knows that happiness is incredibly fragile. You know, the secret to strength for Paul is found in the one who is strengthening him, and that is the resurrected Christ. So he's been convinced through Jesus that with Jesus at the center of his life, he can be content in all things. Paul knows that true joy is only available to us through Christ, and when it's found at the center of his life, it's not fragile. It won't break. And that's what we have to realize is that joy in Christ is not fragile. It's meant to hold the weight and pressure that we ought to put on it in a way that happiness cannot. Joy in Christ is not a fragile thing. And this is what we're being invited to hear today, I think. And that is that grateful people know that joy in Christ will never let them down. But the endless pursuit of happiness will every time. Grateful people know that the, the endless pursuit of happiness is going to let them down, but joy in Christ never will. And joy in Christ can take the weight that we can put on it. And so in, in this famous verse in Philippians 4.13, when Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Paul is not writing about running marathons or climbing a mountain or winning at a sport game or competition. No offense to those who ran the turkey trot on Thanksgiving. No, no, no. Paul is, what he's writing about here is that the strength of the joy we have in Christ is at the center of our lives. When that is at the center of our lives, we have the capacity to live contently. With the joy of Christ at the center of our lives, we are given the capacity to live contently. And so because of that, we don't have to chase after thing after thing. We don't have to, have to chase job after job or promotion after promotion or relationship after relationship or drink after drink. We don't have to chase those things. When the joy of Christ is at the center of our lives, we know that chasing those things will only let us down. They can't fill us. They can't hold the weight. And like Paul, we're called to, be, to learn to be content in all things. And this is his secret. This is his secret. That the joy of Christ at the center of our lives is not fragile, but is very strong. And so we must be a grateful people who are marked by the contentment that we find in our joy in Christ. And that is our witness to the world. In a world that is stuck on happiness, our witness to the world is our joy that we have through Christ. And so what does it look like for us to do that? What does it look like for us to, to lean in, to live toward joy and contentment? Because this has been a tough year. We talked about it. People in our church, I, I know them, people in our church have lost jobs. 
and they buried loved ones. And they've gotten diagnoses. We've been tempted to live in polarized camp or polarized camp. We're living in fear and frustration. It's been a hard, hard year. And when that happens, when hard things happen, we turn to the things which we think make us happy. We turn to those things which we think might make us happier for just a moment. And I'm not immune to this. It's been a tough year, and at times, I've been tempted to turn to something which I think will make me happy for a moment. And then I find those things, what do they do? They tend to fall out beneath me. They're fragile. They can't make me happy. And so I've had to do a few things, and I think these two things will help you as well as you seek to live into joy and contentment this year. And the first is this, that when I've had to chase after other things, when I've been tempted to chase after other things, rather than joy in Christ, I've had to confess that. I've had to say that to someone. And that's what we have to hear is we have to confess. And so multiple times this year, when, when I've been tempted to chase after other things to make me happy, what have I had to do? I've had to go to my small group and I've had to say, guys, I'm chasing after other stuff. And I need you to walk with me and hold me accountable. And they said, we'll walk with you. We're walking with you. And that's what we all need. We need the, the people and the space to confess when we've been chasing after things we thought would make us happy, not the joy of Christ at the center of our lives. And so we have to confess those things. And so who do you have that you can confess the ways in which your life has been centered on happiness and not joy in Christ? Who's in your life that you can say that to? And if you don't have anybody, we got a wall right out here after service. You can go find some people. Or you can confess, I've been chasing happiness and not joy in Christ. But we have to have those people. So we have to confess. But the second is this, is that we have to take a tangible step toward contentment. We have to take a tangible step toward being content. And so beyond confession, we must take a step with our lives, with our, with our money, with our bodies, toward living in joy and being content. And so a few examples of what that might look like for you is this, is that an act of joy and contentment might be that holiday bonus that, you know, is in the back of your mind. That's coming up here in a few weeks. Maybe an act of joy and contentment is giving that away. Don't even let it sit in the bank account before you give it away to somebody who might need it. That's an act of joy and contentment. But maybe the holiday bonus didn't even come in this year. And so maybe you need to give out of what you do have to someone else who needs and say, this is my act of joy and contentment in Christ, is that I don't need this. And I can give to someone else who has greater need than I do in this year. Maybe an act of joy and contentment for you is that in this final quarter, as we're heading toward the end of the year and we're rushing, maybe you ought not seek to make more sales or get in more hours, but maybe you need to spend more time with your family. Maybe your act of joy and contentment might be, I need to work a little less so that I can spend more time with my family. That is my act of joy and contentment. Or maybe it, it might look like taking, taking some of your time and going to one of our local ministry partners who are sharing the gospel and meeting needs to people in our community, and maybe that's your act of joy and contentment, is to take your time and serve others who have great need. But what is your act of joy and contentment in this season? What does it look like for you to live with great joy and contentment as we head toward Advent. And so as we transition from this season of gratitude and thankfulness, and this today being the first Sunday of Advent, it will be tempting again to turn toward consumerism 
and the things we think will make us happy rather than joy and contentment. And so in this season, what does it look like for you to confess and also to take a step toward joy and contentment? Can we do that together in this season? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Uh, Thank you for the fact that we can find true joy and contentment in Christ that you've made a way that we realize that the things we chase after to make us happy, they only fall out from underneath us. They're incredibly fragile. But we know that the joy that we have in Christ is the most strong thing that we could put our hope and our trust in. And so God, lead us in that way in this season to be a people who are joyful and content. Let us live out of that toward our neighbor, our city, and our world. God, we love you, and together this morning we'll say amen.